You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker are the publishers at Tartarus Press. Ray's books include Occult Territory and Arthur Machen Gazetteer, Death Makes Strangers of Us All, The Dark Return of Time, Waiting for the End of the World, She Sleeps. His novella Bloody Baudelaire was filmed as backgammon. He's also the author of Heaven's Hill, Robert Aikman, an attempted biography. His newest book is 50 Forgotten Books. And Rosalie is the author of short story collections including Through the Storm, The Old Knowledge, and Other Stories, Sparks from the Fire, Damage. She's also a director and producer of films including Coverdale, A Year in the Life, Robert Aikman, author of Strange Tales, Intrusions, Looking After Aikman, and Current 93, Live at Halifax Minister. Thank you for joining me, Ray and Rosalie. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, that's a lovely introduction. <laughs> well, your latest book, Ray, is 50 Forgotten Books, and your latest book together from Tartarus Press is Literary Hauntings. Uh, so, but I, I want to ratchet back to something that y- you, uh, uh, kind of an inception point for me with Tartarus Press was Robert Aikman and your literary biography. So tell us why he's so important to you and to the genre and world literature, actually. Well, Rosalie and I have talked about this often. We, we feel that he um, follows perfectly in the tradition of Golden Age ghost stories, but has brought it up to date um, through writers like Walter Delamere, who start becoming much more more from the L.P. Hartley. You then get um, Robert Aikman bringing in um, Freud and psychology and all kinds of modern concerns. And he's he's in that old tradition, but he doesn't necessarily, well, I think he did believe in the supernatural, but he doesn't necessarily have ghosts in his ghost stories. He knows you don't need a ghost to scare people. And they are wonderfully modern and they're wonderfully written and they're very literary. And very, very slowly, the literary establishment seems to be waking up to him. He, the biography was reviewed by the TLS um, just about a month ago. The Times Literary the, Supplement. The Times yeah. Literary Supplement by Margaret Drabble. Suddenly it felt like the, the establishment has finally woken up to him, as they should. And, you know, for me, I have to agree with you. His stories do have a really nice modern feel to them, even though they're relatively old by this time <laughs> in this day and age. But they still feel like could have been written yesterday. And more importantly, he has a sensibility that is both highly literary, he, he works really well, but also it seems like every day and, and as you say, and modern. So, Rosalie, talk about his writing, how that has influenced you in your work as a publisher and as a writer. Rose, do you want to, do you want to say? No, no, you, go on. <laughs> um, well, I mean, his, his influence Tartarus in that we've realized that um, he is the, the gold standard by which we, we measure lots of other writers these days. And you know, both Rosalie and I and a whole host of contemporary writers these days all realize that we we have to um, have Aikman in mind when we're writing because you know he moved the genre onwards. Um, people who are still trying to write James Yingo stories or stories in the style of you know, previous writers are unfortunately you know backwards looking. Um, I mean Aikman was starting to write in sort of fifties and sort of sixties and seventies and eighties, so it's a bit scary that it's actually sort of, you know 30, 40, 50 years ago now. Um, and he was a, he was an old reactionary, and he was very traditional. But um, yeah, he somehow he you know, he is very modern and has all those concerns that we have now. I, I think I think it's quite a lot of that is to do with the fact that he uses surrealism in his stories as well, um, and that really hadn't perhaps been done before in the ghost story and the supernatural story. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, he's, I, you know, it's, I think with Ray's, with Ray's biography, which is great, by the way, um, <laughs> he, um, Ray sort of found that um, he might not necessarily agree with Aikman about anything at all, politically or, um, you know, philosophically, but the man can write a good ghost story. Um, he knows how to do that. And somehow he's kind of slightly um, backward looking worldview with the sort of modern things, the surrealism and the Freudism uh, um, added really works with a ghost story. So he, uh, he I don't know how to explain it really. He, he annoys certain um, readers by being so open-ended, which again is a very modern thing. Um, I mean, with the greatest respect to someone like Henry James, you know what's happened at the end of the story and it can be well written and it can have a great atmosphere and James does atmospheres wonderfully. Um, as with a good film or any good novel, um, with Aikman, you come away from it wanting to discuss it with someone else because you you haven't entirely understood it and that's intentional. Aikman is sort of stuffing it with ideas and allowing you to use it kind of like a Rorschach text, test. Um, it's up to you to get out of that story what, what you want. And, and as a writer, I think that's very interesting, the idea that you can leave things a bit open-ended. You can make suggestions, but not necessarily come down on one side or the other as to what's actually happened, if anything. Um, <laughs> so that I think that's what it's, you know, for me personally, I, and, that's yeah. helped me in my writing. Now, you know, it's interesting that, that you call him to say he leaves, leaves things open because uh, the title of your biography of him, an attempted biography, suggests that you might leave some things open about him as well. And you were mentioning, I think it's really interesting that, you know, he managed to uh, textually divorce his personal beliefs from the text of his stories, so that his stories kind of float, because I, I never detected any particular set of politics or anything in his stories. His stories were always just about, you know, the, what happens when you project your state of mind on the world, which is to say, <laughs> to live, and it reflect, shows you something that's unexpected. Yeah, I mean, considering that Robert was, I mean, People have suggested that he divided opinion amongst sort of friends and people he met. He could be a very awkward character. Um, and I tend to refer to him as Robert, even though I didn't know him, because I've met and talked to a number of people who knew him. Um, but he, he wouldn't have liked me. Um, and my politics and the way that I viewed the world. Um, but you're right. Um, yes, I can see that he was, he liked the past. The past was perfect. Um, the modern day is a really, really bad place to be. Um, if you're Aikman. If you're Aikman, um, which I don't agree with, but it allows him to write about the past. And But it is amazing. He doesn't, um, the, the politics aren't sort of forefront, and it would have been very easy for him to do that. You know, and, and to a, an extent, I mean, that's what makes the writing so powerful today, is that he has managed to capture the, the timeless in his writing, it, it, you could read those and think that they were published yesterday, or as they were 50 years ago. Those are very different worlds, and to achieve that kind of time timelessness, and I, in this uh, sense, I think he shares a lot with, you know, the greats like Kafka and Borges, who you read their short stories today, you say, "Wow, that's <laughs> that could have he could have written that yesterday," and same with Kafka. Yeah, we, we've had this discussion before because um, we're, Ros especially doesn't believe that anything is timeless. Mm. Um, but <laughs> Too much for 80s Marxists, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but definitely with Aikman and the great writers, what they write about um, is relevant for all ages because they're writing about the human condition. Exactly. Um, it's distilled. Yeah. Yes, now yeah. And also, he's creating a kind of unreal, perfect for him world, I think. And that, I think that, you know, he, he, in his stories, that's that's sort of what he's trying to do. Um, and it doesn't, well, not perfect, really, because quite often things go wrong, don't they? But um, <laughs> I think I think he's sort of, um, he's exploring that, his idea of a sort of perfect past 
or a perfect presence or whatever. Ray, let, let's talk about uh, 50 Forgotten Books, which is just a wonderful book. And one of the things you do uh, is you immediately answer the reader's first question before they get a chance to ask it in the introduction, which is, why well, write a book about books when you were going to write another book or publish another book? And I think you just tell a lovely, one lovely story after another about how books have played a part in your life and why these books that you are talking about are so important, not just to you, but to other readers. And, and I think that, that the idea of books themselves and the reading experience generating more stories in, in an almost fractal way is just really wonderful. And, and it's, a, it's sweet and inviting when, you, when it comes to reading books. Well, I, I mean, it was um, the book came about in all kinds of different ways, but yes, that that idea that you know, when we all meet up with friends and talk about books, you can't help but say, "I remember buying that in a particular bookshop," and I was with particular people at the time, and I wouldn't have come across that book if that book dealer hadn't have made a jump when I asked for a different author and suggested you might like, you know, a completely different author. Um, we we all have those stories. Um, and anyone who loves books, you know, treasures those stories and, and we all sort of pass them on. Um, so I think it is a sort of universal thing amongst book lovers. And, and you know, too, you begin with a book I remember reading vividly, uh, which is The Outsider by by Colin Wilson. And I, I remember reading Colin Wilson and thinking, God, this guy's like almost frighteningly adult. This is like... Like a little bit scary for me to read, just in terms of like I might encounter an adult idea that I, you know I don't want to be thinking at this age. But you also talk about you know the idea of outgrowing a book, but still accepting it into your heart because you know when it when you read it and first experienced it, it gave you you know a. a pleasurable reading experience that you know impacted your life so talk about that idea of well, what's often ex uh, uh, explained as the golden age of science fiction from 13 to 17 years old um, yeah it is one of those things there are certain writers like hp lovecraft who meant a lot to me mm -hmm. as a teenager oh yeah and i treasure and remember those stories but I can't read. I can't read them now. They don't work for me. I find his language too strained and overwrought. And I compare him. I think even back in the day, I compared him unfavorably to Arthur Macken, who could write it. any sentence Macken writes is beautiful. Mm. Lovecraft didn't have that, um, so I kind of soon moved on to onto Macken. So I don't reread his stories, but I do still have his books on the shelf because they still mean a lot. But other books that I've reread over time, and one that I've probably read more than any other, is Roland Topol's The Tenant. And I first came across that actually as the TV, as a film version, um, filmed by Roland Polanski, uh, Roman Polanski. And um, I've, I completely misinterpreted the book when I first read it. When I read it a few years later, I got something completely different out of it again. And I've read it sort of maybe four or five times. And I, I recently wrote an introduction to a Valancourt edition and realized that I completely misunderstood it every single time I'd read it before. <laughs> um, what I thought was, originally I thought it was an existentialist book. Then I thought it was a, a, you know, a horror story. Um, I now see it as being an absurdist text. Um, that kind of makes sense of it all to me. But maybe in 10 years time, I'm going to read it again and get something completely different out of it. Um, so I really do sort of treasure the experience of rereading books. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting was this is something I think uh, I guess many male teenagers go through is the idea of being an existentialist. For me, I was the Kurt Vonnegut novels, which I just tore through in in high school. Between that and and Robert Heinlein, who's kind of the the opposite end of the spectrum. But so talk talk about how these books 
you know, influenced your approach to life, you know, at whatever age you encountered them, and also how they changed, you know, influenced your, in what happened to you, which is you became a writer and a publisher. That's a huge, I mean, <laughs> that's a big wallop from reading books as a, as a teenager and a 20-something. Well, I think um, Russ and I are both the same, really. We, we were reading as teenagers and thinking, could we do this? Could we be writers? Um, and although there are great writers who publish you know, great novels at 17, there aren't many because you do need a bit of experience of the world. Um, and yes, I, I did attempt to write my great magnum opus aged about 15. And um, what I thought was a great novel was actually a very short derivative novella. Um, <laughs> I needed time to sort of go away and actually have some experience of the world. And then most of what I write about isn't actually particularly realistic. But um, I, I don't know. I, we're just very lucky that my interest in Macken turned into publishing little booklets about Macken. Um, my little publishing project and hobby, um, we were lucky enough that it became a very small business, um, which I ran when our son came along. Um, I put more time into it, and then Roz was forced to give up her job and uh, working so that she could uh, run Tartarus as well, which, again, writing and publishing had been something she'd always wanted to do. Um, I mean, books have influenced our lives, even, you know, mm. just walking down the street and we see a bookshop, right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else goes out the window. Um, those little uh, uh, bound pages... Yeah. Um, are, are sort of ways into whole new worlds and yeah well I, yeah. I was writing short stories age seven to, reading them to my my poor brother my little brother and I don't know if he remi remembers it that fondly really I was, it was probably a kind of forced audience for me <laughs> that was my earliest writing but yeah I, my earliest sort of desire was to be a writer um, so yeah for both of us it's mm. kind of a dream come true, really. I have a very fond memory of sending a short story, which I wrote with a friend, Adrian Bott, to uh, the Necronomicon Press. And who was Mary Michaud? I can't remember. I don't know how you pronounce her surname. Wrote back a very lovely rejection letter. She said the story was marred by illogical character motivation. It's one of those things that sticks with you over yeah. <laughs> the half a century. Um, <laughs> and the thing is that she was right. Um, but it was the same um, illogical character motivation that makes most books work. You, know, you have an inclination, you know, an idea that something horrible is about to happen. Most of us run. Uh, people in books hang around to see what will happen next. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I love about, about this book too is uh, the, you know, the, the memories of bookstores. Because I remember many of the places where I found all the foundational works that, you know, some of them I've outgrown, some of them I still reread all the time. And one thing you point out is that in this day and age when, you know, the Internet is all supreme and social, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, there are actually more used bookstores than there were what 10 years ago so uh, that's just amazing and so heartening it's heartening but it's very hard to believe um even when presented by the you know with the evidence because um, our great friend the the writer and editor mark valentine has actually put the effort in to um, count the number of bookshops in britain back in the 80s and he's counted them today and yeah, he says there are as many as there ever used to be but in our minds, you go back to a sort of town or a city that had bookshops at some point in one's youth, and you think about sort of the, the five or six bookshops used to go around. They probably weren't all there concurrently. Um, I think that's part of it. When one sort of thinks of a town, and I can remember 10 bookshops there, but no, there were only ever three or four at any one time. Um, and I told this story recently in York, uh, and unfortunately, York, which did have wonderful number of bookshops mm. up until about a year ago suddenly three or four have all gone at the same time um it's difficult but um you know any bookshop that clings on and survives despite you know the appalling rents they have to pay and uh, 
know, in town centres and the internet. You know, they deserve you know, praise and maybe they're mad, but it's wonderful that they're still there. And I should point out that Ray does really does remember where he bought just about every single book he owns. Only the important ones. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> No, I, I I know well. I know how you feel. I can, as I mentioned earlier, I can still see the giant rack of books at the Lucky's books at the Lucky's grocery store, and a, a, a spe- very special spinner rack in the uh, liquor store where they had you know some magazines I wasn't supposed to see, and I'd see the Vampirella comics and think, oh my god. That's too much, but that's also where I found the 17 greatest science fiction stories of all time and which led me to Lovecraft, and that was, I was just down the rabbit hole from there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the memories of these bookstores are an important part of, you know, our life stories, and, and it's interesting, you know, the stories within the stories within the stories that we all carry with us at thanks to the books that we have been able to read. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember fondly the first place where I kept buying books um, was, was called the Magpies, as in Magpies collecting any old junk. It was a junk shop, and they had um, a real miscellany of books in the back, and I was buying all kinds of stuff. Um, half of it was absolute rubbish and I didn't get on with, but I think it was sort of tuppence a time for a paperback um but i found a rich vein of uh, penguin modern classics sort of european classics um which sort of fed my interest in books and in existentialism and um wanting to be an intellectual and perhaps living on the, the left bank in paris um while writing um you know my, my novels in a garret um the interesting thing is who was supplying those books there must have been someone in my small village where i assumed everyone was you know very boring and parochial Somebody had been reading Penguin Modern Classics and was passing them on to the uh, junk shop. There are stories behind the stories. Yeah, there's a story there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I want to ask you about uh, Miss Hargreaves uh, by Frank Baker. Talk, talk about the influence of that book on you and your decision to write about you know this and 49 other books that uh, many humans might might have missed the first time around. Well, um, we sent a review copy to uh, Michael Durda, who is not only one of the sweetest people in the world, he's also one of the best read. And Michael wrote back and said that he thoroughly enjoyed the book. He was very complimentary. And he said there were three or four books I'd mentioned that he hadn't actually read, and he was looking forward to reading them. Out of 50. Out yeah. of 50. Yeah. So I did feel like sort of failed miserably. Um, but when my mum read the book, um, I th- she gave the distinct impression she thought I'd made them all up. They couldn't actually exist. I think most of us are somewhere in between. Um, so there are one or two books in there which it's difficult to say whether they're forgotten or not. But when we first came across Miss Margrave, she wasn't in print. We reprinted her. Um, the book is is amazing and I think there's a paperback reprint now in the UK. So she's not she's not totally forgotten. But we it's not a book. She Miss Hargraves is a real person as far as we're concerned. Once you've read the book you'd understand that. Because she is a, a fictional character who comes to life. And it's the only, I, I've spent many years telling people who can't have humorous horror stories. Um that you can't be frightened and laugh at the same time. It's never worked for me. But Miss Hargraves it is yeah. very, very funny, very, very clever, and very scary, because it's it's about power of imagination and bringing things to life which shouldn't really exist. And maybe take on a life of their own. Yeah. yeah. And and then start to actually do you damage. Um, it, it's a it's a wonderful book. Reminds me of an old church story I remember reading in that I think it was in that seventeen of the greatest short stories. It was a little old. You know, cheesy paperback, a Groff Conklin anthology, uh, a story called It's a Good Life, which was uh, made famously into uh, 
Twilight Zone episode starring Billy Moomy that was absolutely terrifying and also, as you say, funny because when the imagination is brought to life, the the consequences can be both absurdly humorous and thoroughly terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, we, you know, we had um, an experience of this ourselves many years ago. Uh, we were with Mark Valentine and we were mucking around talking rubbish one day and we invented a character called Chapman Winston Blubberhouse. It was purely that we thought Blubberhouse was the one of the worst names you might possibly have, especially if you were going to be a poet. It's actually the real name of a reservoir near yes, us. There's a so, place called Blubberhouses. Yeah. And we were just sort of riffing on this idea that what would happen if you were called a Blubberhouse but you wanted to be a poet, you were doomed. And we invented the character. And um, through various processes, Blubberhouse came to life through a friend of ours who decided to start writing letters to us as Blubberhouse. And we didn't know who it was initially. And they started writing, well, they, this particular person, well, it was Roger Dobson, um, an old friend, and Rupert Cook. They'd been writing to newspapers about various things and couldn't get published, but they found that under the name Blubberhouse, they could get published. So they were having great fun writing very silly letters to uh, the Daily Mail, places like that. Times, yeah. Various newspapers and getting published and then having the fun of sending them on to me to prove that Blubber House really existed. And uh, for a while, I started to doubt whether we'd actually made him up at all. Whether, I, yeah, we maybe we'd been talking to Mark about a real author and I had just mistaken, uh, yeah, or misunderstood what was going on. Um, so, yeah, imagination can cause all kinds of problems. You know, both uh, this book and, and the other book I want to start talking about shortly, Literary Hauntings, are books that are written in a format that encourages kind of uh, browsing, just, you know, not necessarily reading from cover to cover, but just saying, oh, wow, I remember that book. What do they have to say about that book? Or I saw that cover, but I never read the book. What the heck was that on? What they on about? Uh, so talk about, you know, writing a book that can be re read in almost, you know, any order in a sense, but that's not, you know, uh, choose your own adventure style writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Literary Hauntings was very much, um, it was, I was slightly embarrassed when I had, had the idea, but we're both sort of children of the set. We grew up in the 70s and starting to come across books like um, sort of Peter Haining's Gazetteers of Real Ghosts. Um, that's real, sort of, in inverted commas. Um, <laughs> but I remember reading about real ghosts and getting quite excited that I, I got this book. And all it would say is the grey lady is seen walking through a particular wall or um, there's wailing on the battlements you know, once a year. And I'm sure if you're there, it's quite frightening, but they're not very interesting stories. And so the whole idea was to have a gazetteer, but we would have the fictional stories, which are well-written and interesting, and very often about a place, and the place is important. A in, real in place, story. yeah. Um, and it would be a guide so that people would, um, I mean, maybe you'd have to go back to the 1970s to be able to afford to um, just drive around and, and not worry about the price of petrol. Um, but go and visit these these places that have inspired, you know, sometimes some very great writers. You know, we have the Arthur Mackins and the uh, Blackwoods and Jameses of this one. To, to me, I read this, and uh, my wife and a friend are visiting the UK next year sometime, and, and I'm just thinking, this is the perfect travel guide. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, and That's I how say, we first thought of it, really. Uh, we yeah. thought it would be, we wanted it to be used you know, you'd keep it in your car, your um, your vehicle, and um, and sort of go on adventures and holidays and use we, the book. We, we remember in the 1970s, the cars would have glove compartments. No one actually had gloves, but in there we would have the automobile automobile association sort of you know guide to the you know, towns of Britain um, and various other gazetteers yeah. yeah. it's a very old maybe Benjamin's guide to the churches yes the parish churches parish churches yeah. yeah so it's kind of in that vein yeah it was Ray, Ray's idea he thought he was going to be able to um, do it himself you know compile the whole thing himself write it in about you know a week um, <laughs> yeah the plan was just, just to knock it out as a bit yeah. of, not as a joke but yeah, it was a but, bit of fun 
And I quite quickly realized that I didn't know as much as I thought I did when we got Mark Valentine involved. So Mark has written a lot of the, the entries. And then Ros started spotting lots of gaps in writing entries. And we ended up with a whole host of um, contributors. You know, as we realized that you know, our knowledge was lacking with certain writers. Uh, so tell us me, I've never, the word gazetteer is somewhat new to me. So, so what exactly is a gazetteer? Um, it's a guide to places. Okay. Um, interesting places you might want to visit. So once upon a time, you would open it up under um, the city of Bath and it would say there is a spa here. And, you know, Jane Austen's books were set here. And, and you'd open it up at York and it would explain the history of the city of York and places you might want to visit, local attractions. So it, it was a guide. Uh, early tourism, really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that I thought about uh, literary hauntings as I read it, and it's just a super joy to read because um, you know, the the entries are so condensed and you also have lovely pictures of everything and they're all in this kind of weird haunting black and white. It, the book itself feels like, you know, an epi something that was left over from the 60s and has been transported directly via some kind of futuristic technology here into the 21st century. Uh, I'm I think guessing most of that's... our books are like that, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 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 there's, a, there's a certain amount of truth to that, uh, but this in particular uh, brought that back. So talk about, you know, that kind of like trying to join two different times, which is what this really feels like, because the houses are old, the stories, many of them are old, but it's now, and many of these places you can visit now and have that, if you were to go there now, you have like a completely informed experience, both about the real ghosts and the actually real ghost stories that were set in these places. Well, it, it, you're right. It, it is um, a throwback to the past. Um, we did have a comment from someone on, on social media saying, I'm sure this information can be found online. Well, you would have thought that maybe it could be. But it turns out that knowing exactly which house a particular ghost story writer based a fictional um, story on um, is that that's knowledge that sort of certain biographers have and certain researchers have, which hasn't necessarily been published mm. or can't be found all in one place, which is why I found that I couldn't write it on my own. And I needed people like you know, Mike Ashley, who knows anything and everything about you know, Algernon Blackwood. Um, we found an old customer of ours, Gina Collier. Um, I say older because she's been buying books from us for years. We've never had any contact with her particularly. And I discovered her blog, and she was writing really interesting things about writers like Sabine Berry and Gould. Um, and I realized quietly she's an expert in this particular writer um, and had worked out where his stories were set. And she lives in that part of the world and recognized the, the settings, even though the author doesn't say, you know, it's set in, you know, Somerset. Um, she knew that it was because she, she recognised the landscape. And our various contributors all did the same thing. Yeah, there was a certain amount of sleuthing that had to be done, basically. And, of course, the other thing is that many, obviously, many um, ghost story writers annoyingly make stuff up. So they don't always set their ghost stories in a real place. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes they... they set it in a real place, but call it something else. So, yeah, there is a certain amount of expertise that is needed um, to sort of sort all that out and get it into a, a page-long entry in a gazetteer, um, which was quite, quite a good, um, um, what's the word, discipline, you know, having just a short amount of um, space to write in. Because we wanted to get as many in as we could, we decided to give everyone a page, and we wanted a picture. Um, so that it will format it similarly. It, yeah, it really sort of um, concentrated the minds of some of our contributors who would write a five-page essay, and then we'd go back and say, can you get it down to just a couple of hundred words, please? Um, so, yeah, it was uh, a discipline that mm. I think has worked. I I have to agree. I, I just find the writing really entertaining, and the different contributors 
while they have a similar tone, strike different, give the yep. the whole thing really a lot of variety to read about. Yeah. And, and this is done too by the variety of places you visit and also by the variety of stories it inspired. Um, talk about how many of these, what did you say, okay, here's this great story that takes place in a very specific locale. How can I find out how that happened? Talk about some of the sleuthing that went on behind this. Well, it, it really varies because there are some authors who will actually say, you know, 56th Avenue is where the haunting took place. And you can go on Google Earth and you can see it. And that's great. That makes life easy. Um, with Robert Aikman, uh, it wasn't until I was doing the biography of him that I talked to one of his friends who remarked that a particular story had been based on her mother and she gave me her mother's address. Um, I, I wasn't quite sure that I, I ought to actually um, put the information in, whether mm. this was sort of private <laughs> or not. But it went into the biography, so it could then be extracted from the three hauntings. Uh, so we know exactly where Ravissant is meant to have taken place, even though uh, I think Aikman says it's, it's set in Bruges, isn't it, or yeah. somewhere like that. No, it's a particular um, muse building in London. Yeah, there's a certain amount of, sort of um, lateral yeah. thinking on that one. Yeah. yeah. Although he says it's Bruges, we know that all those events took place in really London. Really did take place, yeah. In a particular flat. Um, so, yeah, it, it's... Um, I don't think we've got any that are too spurious, uh, we do have one or two where people go off, uh, yeah, characters and story will go off for a walk, setting off from a particular place, and we know that they walked for two, you know, two hours. Therefore, they must be in the area of, of somewhere, and we hopefully send the readers off looking for the the exact location. Mm. Um, it, it was now, quite important. Sorry, in my in my reading, I haven't come across it, uh, this in the book yet. Did you ever figure out where Arthur Machen set the white people? Uh, not precisely. We know it, it's going to be in Gwent. Um, it's going to be around Killian, uh, the Saw Valley, where he was born and brought up. Um, but no, that's um, it, it would be too dangerous to reveal that, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> people might go off and disappear off with the little yeah. people on, on Grey Hill. If that story still haunts me <laughs> to this it's very day. Isn't it? It's an amazing piece of writing, and I think that's interesting to see. You know, the, the literary hauntings is like a hall of mirrors because you're you're reading yourself, thinking, "Well, I could go to this place," and you're seeing somebody wrote a story about this place, and here's the real story behind the story. <laughs> this is a, a a very like I guess reflective piece of a uh, collection of writing and it, it instantly sold out so I, i'm guessing that it, it you really hit a nerve with this uh i guess you are planning on an instant paperback for from it we are yeah the the, the, the paperback hopefully will be by the end of this month january uh, january yeah yes sorry january Still December. I, I'm still not entirely <laughs> sure what year I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the end of January, we should have a paperback edition. Yeah. So That sounds perfect yeah, so to stash in the global it, department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be more practical to have a paperback, I think. Yeah. You don't want to ruin your lovely 1950s-looking hardback by taking it, taking it out in the field or right. anything. Right. <laughs> and, and it needs to be um, dog-eared and annotated. Yeah. No. I mean, we all, to be serious though, we we also thought that we really wanted we we really like the fact that we've kind of collected together a lot of ghost stories in one book, a sort of compendium of ghost stories, so that you can, if you think, well, I'd really like to read that story, you know, you can work, you can see where you can read it, um, you you know, there it is sort of like a, a celebration of the literary ghost story and over the years already... in, in Britain and Ireland, and, and we. We wanted to do that. You know, we think that's a good thing to do, really. And and there are recommendations yeah. for reading. And we also felt it's important to have some contemporary writers in there yeah. as well. So we've got people like Steve Duffy, um, Helen Grant, Ramsey, Ramsey Campbell, Campbell. 
um, because the ghost story tradition is still alive and kicking, even if Robert Aikman has taken it into strange territory. Mm. There are still people uh, writing really interesting ghost stories. Well, absolutely. I mean, Ramsey Campbell is a, is a, is a master of this, and, and a, a lot of his work seems to feels like it has very specific and realistic settings. And, you know, one thing you were saying, I want to circle back on that, was that this is not just a travel guide. This is also a reading guide at the same time, which, yeah. you know, I had, had not, uh, you know, exactly twigged to that. So uh, where did, there are places where you had to balance out, well, a little too much, you know, more reading, less traveling, less traveling, more reading. Ah, how, what was the percentage of stuff that was discovered through the literary uh, context versus the stuff that was discovered through the place? Oh, we all know about this haunted house it was written about by. I, I think we, I think we all start. We started always with the story, the literary ghost story. That's mm -hmm. where everything started with a particular story. And then we'd see if we could work out exactly where it was in reality, you know, now. And um, I think the way the entries are written, it kind of depends on how interesting the place is as well. Because obviously some of the stories are set, the ghost stories are set, um, you know, say in a prehistoric monument somewhere. And obviously that's interesting in itself. So you can write a bit about that. Sometimes you know, you might want to write a bit more about the story because the story is really interesting or um, or involves several places. Um, so, yeah, it kind of it. But it starts from the story always. That's how we that's how we did it. We didn't start with the place. We started with the story. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, the places that these stories are set, uh, it's really gives a feel, too, for a wide the great wide swath of humanity there's a, a story set in uh, the bank of england or yeah <laughs> so this is not not a setting you think would be a, a place that a ghost story would unfold so uh, were there other unexpected places that you found stories to be set oh, what was, what, oh. unexpected um well, apart from biggleswade yeah. Um, one of the problems we had was that um, we, we started writing without really thinking about the structure, particularly in terms of how the book would look, and realised that there were, there were a lot of ghost stories set in London, and we wanted to make sure that we included every county. And it, it got a bit difficult with a few counties. They don't have that many literary ghost stories, whereas others have a lot. Yeah, Bedfordshire I, was a bit thin on, thin on ghosts. Ghosts, yes. ghost stories. Yeah. <laughs> for example. <laughs> <laughs> and we could probably have added a few more sort of um, McCainian uh, entries uh, in and around Gwent. But um, yeah, we, we were trying to make it sort of representative. But it's not, we know that there are more stories out there. We, you know, one or two um, readers have come to us and said, oh, I know one or two things you've missed out. Well, we're going to have to Great augment for a second it, or, edition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a second edition sound, <laughs> sounds like a plan to me. You know, uh, this has been, a, you know, a consequential year, which we are now finally putting to rest. I'd like you to talk about, you know, your thoughts looking back as you do in this book and in 50 Forgotten Books and also looking forward as the world becomes more electronic and less paper-bound. But, you know, the... Books are still important, and the the process of holding a paper book or you know a hardcover book and reading it is just strikingly different from trying to read something on a screen. And you your books really preserve that tradition, and you have a you've developed a beautiful look and feel for all of your volumes. Talk about you know taking paper and hardcovers in further and further into the 21st century? I think there'll always be a demand for them. Um, you know, it, talking about consequences of this year, I mean, it's producing books has become more awkward. Um, they're more expensive. They are... To yeah, produce, yeah. yeah. We're having to charge more for books, which is really painful to us because we want as many of our books to be read as possible. 
Um, and I remember being an impecunious 13-year-old, not being able to afford new books, which is why we are also producing paperbacks um, and uh, literary hauntings will become a, you know, hopefully an affordable paperback. Um, but there are still there are people who want ebooks, and we make ebooks slightly grudgingly. I don't enjoy making them, but we do have customers who really appreciate it. And just as we're producing this book that you can hold in your hand and is you know lovely paper and nicely bound and printed boards, none of it would have been able to take place. We couldn't have produced the book if the internet hadn't been there, so that we could look it all up. I mean, we we looked up all these places on Google Earth and Street View to make sure that we were doing the right thing. Um, all of our uh, research. And lots was, of the research was online, obviously. Yeah, and, you know. Or initially, you know. The, the, the internet, internet is one of those things, it's both a blessing and a curse. Um, but, I mean, a lot of the illustrations we found were old postcards because they fit the period of the, the stories. Um, so we weren't just showing the, um, the locations as they are today, but we were using um, period photographs. A lot of those were found through the internet and things like eBay. Um, so although we're still sort of celebrating this old-fashioned technology um, in a printed book, um, and hopefully there are still going to be people enjoying them, you know, we are embracing the modern mm. world as well, mm. or having to use the modern world and, and you know, getting a great deal out of it. So, yeah, we're not too rude about technology. No. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you too is that, you know, the publishing scene has really changed in, in since I've been reading your books. I mean, it's been completely transformed and most of it's under the aegis of two or three giant brick-like corporations. Um, yet you persist and survive on the small press. And, and I think, you know, every year that goes by, what you do becomes more and more important and, and I think gains bigger and bigger visibility by virtue of the fact that, you know, you are now one of the, you know, the major long surviving publishers out there. <laughs> so talk about, you know, continuing, you know, publishing, you know, at kind of basically out of your home in, in the, the wilds of Yorkshire Hills um, and, you know, versus, you know, megalithic corporations that have, you know, 40-story buildings in New York and Berlin or wherever they might be? Well, I, I think that we we survive because we publish both um, um, classic book, classic works of supernatural literature from the past. We're reprinting books that have fallen out of print, but there is obviously still a demand for But also because we're publishing contemporary writers who probably wouldn't have been still in, in even though there are so many publishers and as you say there are you know these massive corporations you think they'd hoover everybody up who's any good um there are still people that we're contemporary writers we are finding as a small press who are submitting to us who would probably not be published by anyone else initially and so we are kind of discovering people, um, discovering writers and um, all we've, the time. Yeah. And we've oh. been going so long now, some of the contemporary authors who we think of as cutting edge and new, and we're having to explain to people who they are and why they should read this book by an unknown author. Um, people like Mark Valentine, Angela Slatter, um, have got careers of their own. And They're amazing. They publish with other people and, and we know about them, and they we kind of, of think sort of Rebecca Lloyd and yeah. um, Eric Senna Carlson. Um, you know, and, they, and they are kind of becoming better, better known in our world. Um, but we we are still discovering people, and we have a couple of people we're publishing next year who are, are new authors um, um, and sort of international to you know, not British authors. Um, so we are. I think we there is a role for us still in because we have open submissions and we read everything and have a look at everything and we we are we can pick up authors that just wouldn't get picked up otherwise so there there is a role for us both as a sort of looking back publisher and a looking forward publisher 
Well, I'm reminded. So maybe of, I'm maybe I'm bigging us up too much. <laughs> I'm reminded uh, uh, of the the loney. Uh, yeah. Which is was a hit for you and also a, a big hit out, you know, beyond you. So talk about you know that that ongoing process of you know looking for the next Arthur Machen. Well. Yeah, well, it won't be Arthur Macken, will it? It'll be someone else. You <laughs> know, <laughs> um, someone different. Um, I, well, we're, we're not, I mean, we're, all we're doing is kind of finding writers whose writing we think is excellent and that we like, that's in our field, um, and publishing them. It's as simple as that. The difficult bit is to persuade our customers to try new authors that they haven't read before. Um, but, but because we've been around so long and we have very loyal customers, some very lovely loyal yes. customers, some, we are able to sort of um, make a case at least for those new authors. And we are, you know, increasingly able to to um, uh, persuade people to buy the books. Um, you know, the Loney was probably a one off, you know, Loney was translated into 20 languages and it's an international bestseller and all the rest of it. Um, that's probably a kind of once in a publishing lifetime book for us, um, as we only publish sort of 10, 12 books a year. Um, but I, I still think that we are, we're publishing some writers who really ought to be better known and, you know, are certainly good enough to be mm. better known and in the publishing world and the reading world. Um, and we'll keep carrying on doing that, finding them and publishing them as long as we can you know, sit upright in front of a computer. <laughs> I've been and speak- stand, stand up at a table. And stand up, up at a table, wrapping them up. Yeah, and send them out. Post them all over the world. Yeah. yeah. I have been speaking with Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker. They're the publishers of Tartarus Press, the authors of numerous books, and together their latest book, along with Mark Valentine and a bevy of other wonderful contributors, is Literary Hauntings. Thank you for joining me, Ray and Rosalie. Thank you. Pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.